Hi, I'm Brad. Hey, I'm Melissa. And this is Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, Strange History. That's right. Good job. (laughs) I've listened to this a time or two. Today's episode, we're going to be covering the life and assassination of President John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th President of the United States, and another bearer of the Kennedy family curse. Instead of a random historical event of the day, we're going to take a quick look at the other members of the Kennedy family and how the Kennedy curse affected them overall. Episode 14, Kennedy's State of Mind. I thought it was important to do a little bit of a deep dive into uh, JFK's early life before we sort of, you know, got into his presidency and the assassination. Brad and I sort of sat down and made a list of soon-to-be episodes, and this was like, what what would you say like the first thing that we were like yes absolutely we have to talk about jfk i'm pretty sure that it was like the first thing that we even talked about i made like a list and i'm pretty sure this is the first thing i wrote down i think so yeah i also told my mom this is random told my mom that we were doing this episode and she <laughs> texted me back and was like oh my god jfk is my favorite president i wrote so many papers about him and i visited his grave meanwhile this woman wasn't born until after um, he, she was born in the 70s, but the fact that she had a favorite president when she was 12 and that it was JFK, I thought was funny. I'm also really, really happy that your mom has a fascination with JFK, <laughs> uh, because I too, growing up around the age of 12, had a fascination with JFK. I actually did a social studies fair project, not on him, but on how he died. And I won states. <laughs> I don't think I really got into it until I started learning about so I was a junior in high school when that finally got a teacher who was like hey y'all know who JFK is and I feel like none of the rest of my history teachers ever broached the subject other than like he was president and he was shot that's all I know but now I know a lot more which I'm very excited about so John Fitzgerald Kennedy was born on May 29th in 1917 in Brookline Massachusetts he was the second of nine kids so he had an older brother Joe, um, and then the rest of these are younger siblings. So we have Rosemary, Kathleen, Eunice, Patricia, Robert, Jean, and Teddy. So five girls total um, and four boys. His father, Joseph, was a multimillionaire. <laughs> he was a banker. He was into bootlegging and shipbuilding. He was into the film industry. He was really, really good with the stock market. Uh, His mom, Rose Elizabeth Fitzgerald, like I said, she was the daughter of John Francis Fitzgerald, who was actually the 38th and 40th mayor of Boston. All nine children actually had trust funds, which were provided by their parents so that they could be financially independent as they got older, which... Goals. Yeah, mad as fuck. I wish I had a (laughs) trust fund growing up. I wish I had a savings account growing up. anything. Like a spare $100 on my 18th birthday... Would be amazing. For sure. I think I got a hundred bucks for graduating high school from like a weird cousin. That was, that Mm. was how I had to start my adult life. Oh, felt that. (laughs) So I thought this was weird. And I understand that like nicknames can come from anywhere. I have no idea where this nickname came from, but his entire family called him Jack. So if I say Jack, we're talking about JFK. I think it's super weird, but that's just what they called him. Now, when he was only two years old, he would actually got 
sick with scarlet fever. He recovered a month later, so this was March 1920, and it sort of became a joke that he was always facing some sort of ailment or another, which will come into play later. And his, I thought this was funny. His family joked that if a mosquito bit him, the mosquito would surely die. Uh, aggressive. He grew up in a Roman Catholic household. It was also very competitive uh, with really high expectations, especially um, competitions between the boys. It was really encouraged by Joseph. Also jealous that every summer they went to a summer home in Hyannisport in Cape Cod. They would swim and sail and play football. Um, Joseph Jr., I guess is technically his name, and Jack would uh, play really rough. None of the other kids would, but like these two, you know, the two older brothers were always beat each other up, but so, in like a nice brotherly way. It's a very, very common thing for, you know, young boys to absolutely beat the living shit out of <laughs> one another. I don't have any brothers that I was super close to, but I have cousins. <laughs> I have cousins who I remember hurting me quite a lot. Uh, I have a little brother and I just made fun of him, so... That's it. Oh, and older sisters, but we didn't really fight. Uh, as he got into his teen years, he attended a boarding school in Connecticut, Choate Rosemary Hall. That's how you say that, I hope. Um, almost all of the Kennedy siblings, um, I believe, attended some sort of boarding school or another. But here he played tennis, football, basketball, and golf. He's a jock. Yes. Uh, he was not the best student which, as you can imagine, in sort of a high-pressure family can be an issue. Uh, he would work really hard in history and English because these were his faves. Totally relatable. Hate math and science. We would have been BFFs. Uh, his father actually wrote him a letter once, essentially telling him to do better. And I took a quote from this letter because I thought it was um, interesting. Um, his dad said, I'm not expecting too much, and I will not be disappointed if you don't turn out to be a real genius. But I think you can really be, you can be a really worthwhile citizen with good judgment and understanding, which I thought was cute. Uh, he graduated from this boarding school in 1936, and then he joined his brother uh, at Harvard. And his dad also went there, so it was a whole family ordeal. He played football at Harvard, and he actually ended up injuring his back at the time, so he couldn't play. And this really impacted him for the rest of his life. In 1937, the entire family, with the exception of Joe and Jack, since they were still at Harvard, moved to England as uh, Joseph Kennedy was named the U.S. ambassador to England. Jack became very obsessed um, with Europe and European politics and world affairs. He often got letters from his dad talking about the tension and conflicts going on in Europe at the time. And in my notes, just so you know how I write these things, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote Hitler and Mussolini things because, you know, it was the four, early, late 30s uh, into the early 40s when they went out there. So. And so all that stuff was already in full swing around yeah. that time. And then when World War II began two years uh, after he was appointed ambassador, so in 1939, the entire family moved back to the United States to be uh, safe. At this point... Jack was a senior at Harvard. He actually wrote his thesis on why Great Britain wasn't prepared for a war with Germany. This got published a year later 
Um, it's called Why England Slept, and then he graduated that same year in 1940. He joined the Navy with his brother Joe. JFK became a lieutenant in 1941, and his brother was a flyer. So in 1942, uh JFK was sent to the South Pacific, and he was actually the commander of PT-109. It was a Navy torpedo patrol boat. He had a crew of 12 men, and their overall mission was to stop Japanese ships from delivering supplies to war-impoverished troops. On August 2nd, 1943, Kennedy's crews were out patrolling, you know, doing their thing, looking for enemy ships, and there, lo and behold, a Japanese destroyer was just bearing down full speed ahead. Kennedy tried to swerve out of the way, but PT-109 was split right in half on impact, and two men would end up losing their lives. Everyone else managed to jump off the boat. Patrick McMahon, one of the crew members, had terrible burns across his hands and face, and he was essentially ready to just give up and unalive himself. Kennedy found him in the water and pulled him to a piece of boat that the other men were clinging to. He then led his men to a small island several miles away, and even though he was incredibly injured by being slammed into the cockpit, hurting his injured back even more, he pulled McMoan to the shore with a strap from his life jacket between his teeth. Six days afterwards, island natives there found them, and they went for help, delivering a message that Kennedy had carved into a piece of coconut shell. The next day, the entire crew were rescued. Coconut shell. Coconut shell. I don't know what I would do in that situation, obviously. Um, he did, but coconut shell. Coconut shell. But you know, I actually understand uh, McMahon's desire to just <laughs> die, die yeah. there in the water as someone who has been caught on fire across <laughs> my hand and face. I get it. I probably would have just drowned too. So his brother, who was also fighting in the war at the time, as we mentioned earlier, um, Joseph Kennedy Jr., he actually died in 1944 when his plane blew up uh, over England during a very dangerous mission. That's all the information I have on that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about JFK's siblings, because this sort of pertains to what we do. Like, like in terms of job, right? kind of. I don't know. We talk about this, this a lot. And hey. I usually try and throw out this fact every time I'm at work because I think it's really cool. Not cool, but sad, but cool in a history way. So he had a sister, Rosemary. Um, she was a year younger than him. She was born in 1918. Their parents noticed that she was sort of developing more slowly compared to her brothers. But originally they weren't really worried until her younger sisters started to develop, like were hitting those developmental milestones uh, quicker. And then they sort of became worried. And they don't really know where her intellectual challenges came from. They were just there when she was born. And of course, back then, there wasn't really a whole lot of information on anything or how to take care of people like this in Rosemary's situation. Joseph Kennedy made the ultimate decision to keep her at home. He thought, you know, we can do this with family. 
all the things that they could do at an institution, we can do it better. Um, she can stay with family. So they really kept her involved in all the activities and routines. So if they went on vacation, she went, obviously. <clears throat> she also got to attend public school in her early years, but she had to repeat a lot of grades and was often behind the other children. When she went into her teens, uh, she was sent to several boarding schools, as all of the Kennedy children were, and she sort of bounced back and forth between a lot of them. Uh, her care and her education became a lot more demanding. A lot of the schools that she went to actually had really good programs, but because she was moved around so much, it actually became more of a hindrance than anything. When the Kennedys moved to England in 1937, Rosemary was placed in a convent school that had a, a Montessori program, and she was incredibly happy. She was doing really, really well. She had sort of a, a sense of stability that she hadn't had before. But as I said earlier, when World War II started and the Kennedys came back to the United States, Rosemary um, didn't do well with that transition. She started to rebel and didn't really understand why she didn't have the same sort of freedom as her other siblings. I mean, she was in her 20s. You know, her other siblings were older and they could pretty much do whatever they wanted. Uh, her parents were very worried that she would be taken advantage of or even embarrass the family. It was around this time that the Kennedy family started searching for a cure. Now, they had learned that a new procedure was taking America by storm, and it claimed to reduce things like depression, aggressiveness, and things of that nature in being mentally insane. However, it wasn't actually accepted for usage by the American Medical Association. However, Joseph Kennedy was assured by the procedure's creator that Rosemary would be a complete success, despite all of the failed cases. In November of 1941, he would arrange for Rosemary Kennedy to have a prefrontal cortex American lobotomy. Now, we talk about the lobotomy, what, four times a day? <laughs> Sometimes more. Four times, three times <laughs> a day at our other jobs. So we are what you might call experts. I don't know if I would classify myself as an expert, but I know enough about it. Now, the transorbital American ice pick lobotomy would be pioneered by one Dr. Walter Jackson Freeman around early 1939. His ultimate idea was to alleviate the amount of patients inside of the American Mental Health Care Associations and asylums throughout the country. The basic idea of the procedure was to use something called an orbitoclasp. It's about a foot long, solid round piece of steel that would be inserted into the side of a patient's eye socket, just around where the tear duct is. He would then use a surgical hammer to kind of pound it through the side of the tear duct and down into the frontal cortex of the brain. Now, once inside, it was a pretty simple process, applying 25 pounds of lateral pressure to the left side and then evening it back out, an additional 25 pounds of pressure to the right-hand side. This was done on both orbits, hence its name transorbital, in an attempt to completely kill off the brain's neurological connections to the frontal cortex, all in an attempt to cure or destroy the brain's connections, trying to cure mental insanity. Now, Rosemary Kennedy's lobotomy would leave her unable to walk or talk. She was immediately institutionalized at the St. Coletta School for Exceptional Children in Jefferson, Wisconsin. She would die there on January 7th, 2005, with, surrounded by her sisters Jean, Eunice, and Patricia, 
and her older brother, Teddy. And her little brother, Teddy. Yes. <laughs> you can say that again if you'd like to. <laughs> and her younger brother, Teddy. I thought it was really interesting when I, because I knew about Rosemary Kennedy having a lobotomy. What I didn't know was about any of her siblings sort of relationship with her and sort of in her later years her sister Eunice especially became a lot closer to Rosemary she would visit her often and this had a huge impact on Eunice she's actually the person who founded the Special Olympics in 1968 really which I I literally did not know that I thought that was so cool you know she she did care for her sister Eunice is actually a big um like, if you research more into Rosemary Kennedy, they usually cite Eunice a lot, saying, you know, she she was the person who was there for Rosemary the most. Like a is, primary caregiver. I would just, I would honestly just say, like, a sister, a best friend. I get that. In, like, a cute way. Very adorable. Yeah. <laughs> I love learning these nicer, <laughs> nicer parts of history. Anyway, back to the main, the main guy we're talking about. So JFK came back to the U.S. after his whole incident. He was awarded the Navy and Marine Corps Medal for his leadership and courage. I think it's for heroism, 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 heroism as well. Uh, When he came back, he obviously needed a job and he thought about becoming a teacher or maybe a writer. I mean, he already had that one published book, but his brother's death um, really had an impact on him. When they were still in Harvard together, uh, Joseph Jr. was very like, I'm going to be the first Catholic president of the United States. That was his whole thing. He wanted to be in power like that. Um, He loved the government and everything. You know, he wanted to change it and and do all these good things with it. So JFK pulled a lot of inspiration from, from his brother and his dad was very much like, hey, you know what you should do? Run for president. Yeah, run for Congress maybe eventually be president. So that's exactly what he did in 1946. He uh, ran and won uh, Congress in Massachusetts in the 11th Congressional District. He served three terms, which is six years, in the House of Representatives, and then he was elected to be a U.S. Senator in 1952. What party was he? He was a Democrat. Obviously. (laughs) Are you making fun of my notes? I, in, in, in parentheses, I wrote Democrat, obviously. Only the fact that you failed to mention it. <laughs> I'm pretending that it, might, it wasn't there. We all know, right? So on September 12, 1953, uh, that's when he got married to Jacqueline Bouvier. I think that's how you say that. He was 36. She was 24. Quite an age gap. A little bit. Um, super interesting. They met at a dinner. A year before they got married. It's a nice place to meet someone. At the time, she was a writer with the uh, Washington Times Herald. And I, when I looked up how did they meet, it literally just said they met at a dinner. I, I found no other information other than that they met at a dinner and then a year later they were married. I imagine them meeting in like the parking lot of an Applebee's. <laughs> it's like $2 margarita day and they're both just there, him and his nice five-piece suit and her in a little summer dress and him being like, that's the one for me. I, I quit. After the Kennedy impression, I quit. Yeah, it was not on par. <laughs> I hope you delete that. 
Uh, earlier in their marriage, uh, JFK's back started to act up pretty badly again um, since he injured it in college and then injured it again in the war. Uh, so he got two surgeries, one in 1953 and one in 1955. He was also suffering from Addison's disease as well. Uh, when he was recovering from his surgery in 1955, he actually started to write a book about U.S. senators who were risking their careers to fight for what they believed in. Uh, it's called Profiles in Courage, and it actually won a Pulitzer Prize in biography in 1957. Very impressive. Interesting fact for you about the Kennedys. <laughs> um, since he suffered from Addison's disease, this was actually like hidden from... Uh, the public as much as it could be he was always in like constant physical pain and to combat that pain at the time in the 50s he started taking uh injections of amphetamines uh, which at the time of course thought to be harmless celebrities used them all the time and according to some reports both jfk and jackie were heavily dependent on these weekly injections Which I thought was interesting. It is. It is really interesting. I mean, it didn't impact him, like, in terms of his job, but... Right, right. Weekly amphetamine injections. Is this just what he did in the 50s? So, November 27th, 1957, their first daughter was born, uh, Caroline Bovier Kennedy. Uh, she's actually currently their only surviving child. Uh, they had another son. Sorry, they had... Oh, God. Their first son, John F. Kennedy Jr., was born November 25th, 1960, um, and then he died in 1999 in a plane crash. And in 1963, um, they had another little boy, Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, uh, but he died of an infant respiratory distress syndrome uh, two days later, which is sad to think about. It's very sad. A lot of, a lot of death in this family. Now, at this point in the, you know, mid to late 50s, he started to run for president. <laughs> and I will cover the presidency. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about campaigning together because I thought the one thing that I knew, like, distinctly before we started this research that um, JFK and Richard Nixon were the first televised presidential debate. Right. However, when I looked into it, that's not necessarily true. Really? Yeah. Um, they were the first presidential candidates to be, like, in a televised presidential debate. There was actually one um, four years earlier with, like, you know, Teddy Roosevelt and whoever else. I can't remember. Didn't care to look more into it than that. Um, my history is terrible. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt and someone else actually debated on TV. Interesting. I didn't know that. I didn't either. I was always led to believe that Kennedy was the first. I don't know. Eleanor Roosevelt. But they're technically the first presidential candidates, since these weren't. No. Uh, but yeah, he ran against Richard Nixon. And in their first televised debate, he didn't want to wear makeup or anything. And so he looked very sickly and gross, like an old man. And JFK, of course, in his 40s, looked great and fantastic. Then. <laughs> I hope I look that... great and fantastic in my 40s. <laughs> and that helped him a lot.
on January 2nd of 1960, Kennedy would officially announce his candidacy for presidency under the Democratic ticket. Well known as the prodigal son of the family, as well, his, as well for his work as a senator and a member of the House of Representatives, Kennedy was already very well known to the American public. Easy on the eyes, charismatic and easy to talk to mean a lot in politics, but so do age and experience. Kennedy was young, and that, of course, rubbed more senior voters in the wrong way. Who would want someone only in their low 40s to run an entire country? And of course, we can't forget one of the things that Alyssa touched on earlier. Kennedy was a devout Catholic, and even in a country that preaches religious tolerancy, there was a lot of anti-Catholicism in the 1960s. Kennedy's religion made it even made even more voters shy away from him. Thankfully, he was, again, very charming, and knew his office and his own ideas very well. He preached from day one about the separation of church and state, and how his religion would not affect how the country would be ran. Interestingly enough, though, his plan actually worked. Tensions would be resolved among more Christian voters rather quickly. Nonetheless, however, Kennedy still had to deal not only with the general public, but with other politicians. Others running on the Democratic ticket would include names such as Lyndon B. Johnson, the Senate Majority Leader from Texas, and Senator Hubert Humphrey of South Dakota. The campaign would also be a family affair, as most things with the Kennedys were. Financed by his father and managed by his younger brother, Robert, Robert Kennedy's run was interesting from the start. He made it a point to travel the country, visiting Democratic leaders, elites and state strongholds. One of the first state primaries he sought to win was that of Wisconsin, and when he secured that election, he firmly knocked Senator Humphrey out of the running for that particular state. What? I just... So he would have spent a lot of time in Wisconsin. He did. That's where his sister was. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that's just... <laughs> we're tying it all together. Look at me. Now, content with his win in Wisconsin, Kennedy moved towards the East Coast and found his way down the country roads to the mountain state of West Virginia. Now, Catholics made up less than 5% of the overall voters in West Virginia, and Kennedy was made very well of the fact that he would probably not win the state. Retouching on an earlier point, he was Catholic, and there was a lot of prejudice against his religion. He was informed that he could never get the votes necessary to clear the 20-point lead held by Senator Humphrey in the state of West Virginia. But Kennedy did something really interesting here. Boots on the ground. He listened. He cared. He talked to elders and listened to the stories of tending farms and working their lives away deep in the underbelly of the earth digging for coal. He traveled the state from top to bottom, speaking at events both large and small, meeting every single person he possibly could. A spotlight turned on the state of West Virginia, showing not only the poor, deprived conditions of its people in the 1960s, but also showing their fairness, their grit and determination, and their drive to do good for their family and for the state in which they lived. Distressed, but also hopeful because of an economic recovery plan that he had promised Appalachian voters surprised everyone when Kennedy won the state in a landslide victory, securing for himself not only the votes of the Mountaineers, but
but also their hearts and loyalty. Winning the state impressed the party, but it was still very unclear if Kennedy could actually win the race or not. Now, nothing I can write can sum it up better than this, so I'm going to use a quote from Kennedy on May 4th of 1960 on the, in the city of Charleston, West Virginia. I address you tonight as a candidate for the President of the United States. That is a solemn responsibility, and your responsibility in selecting the next president is equally solemn, for no other office in the land is so important in determining your future, in leading our country to peace or war, to prosperity or depression, to hope or despair. I am here because I believe the people of West Virginia have a right to help select the next president. For America is not just Chicago and Los Angeles. It is Logan and Beckley and Welsh as well. So I am glad I, come to, I came to West Virginia to meet its people, to learn its needs, to hear its hopes. With your help, I hope to give this state and nation the kind of leadership the time demands in the White House. Not just a coordinator, not just a politician or an orator, but a man who will truly be the president of the United States. All that for eight electoral votes. Eight electoral votes. Mm -hmm. That's how many votes West Virginia had in 1960. Eight. <laughs> eight. Kennedy would eventually choose Lyndon B. Johnson as his vice presidential candidate, angering many in the party. He did have a plan, however. The powerful and popular Texas senator would win him approval and votes in the South. But it was enough, and Kennedy won the party nomination, and now had a new foe to face. Incumbent Richard Nixon held a six-point lead in the polls. Issues of debates were the economy, Kennedy's own religion, and the missile and space capabilities of the Soviet Union. Like Alyssa mentioned earlier, Kennedy would square off against Nixon on live television during his campaign run. Covered in sweat, boasting a five o'clock shadow and a bum leg, Nixon was the rougher of the two. He was tense and uncomfortable in front of the cameras. Kennedy, however, thrived in the limelight, donning makeup and a commanding attitude which drew even more and more people to his side. This televised debate would seal the election in Kennedy's favor, however narrowly. The closest presidential election in U.S. history. By popular vote, he won only two-tenths of a percent. What were those numbers again? You said I didn't get them right earlier. <laughs> yeah, so it's not two-tenths, it's just one. Um, it was 49.7% um, to Nixon's 49.6%. I couldn't imagine losing by 0.1%. I can't imagine, like, you know, waiting for those results to pop up. Scary. <laughs> this close race brought technically the youngest president as well, at only 43 years of age. Now, as president, Kennedy had very big plans. He wanted to chart a new and significant course in domestic policy and foreign affairs. However, the Soviet Union would create issues for the new president almost from day one. He had the respect of Premier Nikita Khrushchev. 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 I knew I was going to get that right. Yeah, you were saying it right. Due to his intelligence, but the Soviet leader ultimately found him to be weak. 
In June of 1961, the USSR announced a plan to sign a treaty with East Berlin, leading to Kennedy becoming angry and depressed. He assumed that this action would lead to all-out nuclear war between the two superpowers, and started the process of preparing the country for the inevitable assault that would never come. He himself had predicted a one-in-five chance of a nuclear attack. A month afterwards, in July, Kennedy announced his own plan to increase military spending by an additional $3.25 billion. That's around $28 billion in modern USD, while also adding on an additional 200,000 troops. He finished his speech by stating that any attack on West Berlin would be treated as an attack on the American people themselves. This speech would draw a massive 85% approval rating, and the country readied itself for war. Is this when I can talk about the phone? You can talk about the phone. <laughs> okay, so I don't know if this is true, because you said it's not true. I said I didn't know if it was true. We probably could just Google it. Anyway, <laughs> there was a telephone line between Washington and Moscow, and I just... Have, like, I've known that, you know what? It is true. I learned it in history class. If it's wrong. Um, Someone let us know if it's wrong. <laughs> if, if, it's, if it's wrong and Mr. Kimball, you're listening, thanks. If you have some sort of insider knowledge about a special red phone in the White House desk, please, for the love of God, let us know <laughs> kindly in a message or an email. There's no need to knock my door down at three o'clock in the morning because we messed something up. No, but listen. So I just imagine in my mind John F. Kennedy at 3 a.m. whatever time it is in Russia calling up Nikita because he's bored and he can't sleep and he, he just wants to talk to his low-key bestie and you're trying so hard not to laugh or cry I can't tell <laughs> you just keep thinking <laughs> folks I'm truly here to ruin Brad's life completely um, I did manage to find um, JFK slash Nikita Khrushchev uh, fan fiction. Um, it exists, folks. It exists. There were two of them. Two of them on one website. I didn't do any. The two were enough. The one paragraph was enough. <laughs> I did send Brad a paragraph. Um, <clears throat> in case you were wondering, Kennedy's a top. I'm not surprised. Good for him. <laughs> And here's where the entire premise of this podcast changes. From now on, we're only going to be talking about historical figures and whether they're a top, a bottom, or a switch. <laughs> we're going to find so much fiction. Oh, my God. We'll start writing it. Oh, guys. my God. We will. <laughs> it, it'll, be, it'll be a completely other podcast. At this point, it, it's necessary. Yeah, we can talk about strange history, and then we can talk about strange history fan fiction. Right. Yeah. we'll see if i keep this in here or not (laughs) kennedy would experience a major event in u.s history during his presidency the failed bay of pigs invasion fidel castro the cuban leader and pro-communist was to be overthrown by the american government the central intelligence agency or cia with the backing of the u.s military had trained around 1,500 anti-Castro exiles to invade the island in an attempt to incite a revolution amongst their countrymen. On April 17, 1961, these troops landed on Cuba. 
and by the 19th of the month, all of them had been captured or killed. After negotiating for their release, the Kennedy administration would send around $53 million worth of food and medicine to Cuba, but the damage was done. The world knew of the failed invasion backed by the U.S. government and the CIA, and Kennedy's administration would be tarnished by the event. In March of 1962, Kennedy vetoed Operation Northwood. It was another plan to deal with Cuba by initiating false flag attacks against the citizens of the United States in an attempt to convince the country to go to war with Cuba. He did not, however, rule out invading the country itself later that year. In October of 1962, a CIA U-2 spy plane captured photos of an intercontinental ballistic missile site in Cuba during an overhead flyby. Fearful that the buildup of nuclear arms within quick strike distance of the mainland U.S. was a prelude to war, Kennedy made the choice to annex the country in its entirety and create a massive naval blockade around Cuba. Every single ship flying Soviet colors would be stopped and searched for weapons of mass destruction. Kennedy even went as far as making his intentions known to the world on radio and television broadcasts. After a very tense period, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev would agree to dismantle the missile sites and allow the United Nations to perform a series of investigations to ensure that they were done correctly. This is the closest the modern world has ever came to nuclear war. But in the end, the humanity of both superpowers would win. The United States would also agree to never again invade Cuba and also removed all of their own missiles from Italy and Turkey. Not because we were trying to do the good thing, though. They were outdated. And by that point in time, we had some mounted on submarines instead. <laughs> Kennedy's career would be cut dramatically short on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, at roughly 12.30 p.m. Why would you phrase it that way? I could have said so many other things. That's fair. It could be worse. <clears throat> I just <laughs> how you said it was sorry I have <laughs> you can keep going Kennedy was in Dallas Texas to smooth over a bit of a dispute between Don and Ralph Yarborough no relation and John Conley as the motorcade rounded through Dealey Plaza the shot rang out the open top 1961 Lincoln Continental was approximately 186 foot or 57 meters down Elm Street during the initial shot. Now, here we really need to cover the shooting and the capabilities of the weapon in question used during the Kennedy assassination. Can I throw out there that Miss Jackie Kennedy herself did not want to ride in a convertible and she tried to convince him to be in a car with like a closed top? Can I also throw out that after the assassination, they actually didn't stop using that specific car? And the following three presidents also used that same vehicle? Horrible. No, yeah. You want to hear something even worse? Always. <laughs> so I threw out a history teacher's name earlier. Uh, this is the man that I had for junior year history in high school. And we had a whole section on the Kennedy assassination. Um, there's a video. I watched the video probably about 20 times in this class. <laughs> My teacher was so like into the different conspiracy theories, which we'll touch on a little bit. 
um, that he made us, the students, and him recreate what happened. I know that sounds weird. So he had four chairs in the center of our classroom. So like the driver, the person in the passenger seat or whatever, uh, JFK and Jackie. And let me guess, you were Jackie? <laughs> he asked for volunteers. Of course I had to be Jackie Kennedy. So yeah, we recreated um, when I was <laughs> 16, 17 years old in a high school history class, got to recreate the JFK assassination. And I, of course, was Jackie Kennedy. I love that. I love that for you. <laughs> Shooter Lee Harvey Oswald, United States Marine Corps, used an Italian-made Karenko rifle chambered in 6.5 times 52 millimeter with a four times zoom scope. The round is decent enough and it can be used as a hunting round for mid-sized North American game within 250 yards with proper bullet placement. It produces around 2,293 joules worth of energy with a strike velocity of roughly 2,170 feet per second. To make that easy for people who don't understand ballistics or socket math like me, that means that bullet can cover twice the height of the Empire State Building in one second. The distance from nest to motorcade means the rifle was within optimal distance for even a novice shooter, but there are a lot of other issues at play. Kennedy was shot from the sixth, sixth, from the sixth floor window of the Texas School Book Depository Building, Depository Building, moving at a speed of around 12 miles an hour. A hit against a target nearly half the length of a football field would be a hit against a moving target at nearly half the length of a football field from an elevated position would be difficult to achieve. But again, Oswald was a U.S. Marine. He would reach the rank of sharpshooter twice in his military career, hitting 48 out of 50 stationary targets at 200 yards, almost triple the shot distance, with a standard issue M1 Garand. Military investigators stated that he exhibited above-average abilities with a long gun and was a most excellent shot, according to his records. Interestingly enough, though, in May of 1959, he would hit the range again and fail out, achieving only the ranks of marksman. Fellow, fellow soldier Nelson Delgado stated that Oswald was a horrible shot, often missing targets numerous times before he got a hit. To make the assassination more interesting, in tests decades afterwards, expert shooters were unable to hit the shots correctly at this distance with this rifle on a moving target at that speed in the time frame of the 8.3 seconds it took from the first to the third shot. But back on track. Kennedy would be struck by two of the three rounds fired by Oswald. The first round would also strike John Conley in the chest breaking several ribs, puncturing a lung, breaking a wrist, and ended up embedding in his leg. The second round would impact Kennedy's person around the neck, and the third would mark the back of his skull. The two politicians were quickly evacuated to the Parkland Memorial Hospital and arrived there at 12.36 p.m., six minutes after the shots. Have you seen the video? I have seen the video. And... There's just a, if you haven't seen the video, um, don't look it up if you're sensitive to, you know, presidents being shot in the head. Um, <laughs> there's a moment where 
when his head is shot, obviously, you know, pieces go places. Jackie Kennedy climbs the back of the car, grabbing a piece of his skull. She actually tried to hold his brain in, too. Yeah. She tried her best to save that Her little pink outfit was covered in, in blood, and she refused to change for hours afterwards. Well, she was even wearing that same outfit when they swore Johnson in. Yeah. Terrifying. Now, at 12.40, CBS News announced the shooting on television channels around the country. Within 20 minutes, at 1 o'clock p.m., a Catholic priest administered last rites over Kennedy's body and he would officially be declared dead. A lot of people don't know, though, that Kennedy wasn't the only person killed that day. At 1.15 p.m., Lee Harvey Oswald would shoot and kill Dallas Police Patrolman J.D. Trippett using a Smith & Wesson 38 caliber revolver. Less than an hour later, he would be arrested by Dallas police in a movie theater. Shortly afterwards, around 2.38 p.m., about two hours after the assassination, it's actually like an hour and 38 minutes, but who's counting? Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson would take the official oath of office inside the safety of Air Force One. Air Force One would leave Dallas, Texas, and make the somber trip to Washington, D.C., dropping Kennedy's body at the Bethesda Naval Hospital for an autopsy at the behest of Jackie Kennedy. On Sunday, November 24th, Oswald was being walked from the police headquarters of Dallas to be moved to a local county jail when something outrageously unthinkable happened. A lone gunman, a man by the name of Jack Ruby, owner of a local nightclub, stepped out of the gathered crowd, gun in hand, and fired a single shot point blank in the stomach of Lee Harvey Oswald. He died two hours later in the same hospital that Kennedy was declared dead in. Ruby would be convicted but would win an appeal, and almost immediately die of cancer within about, I think it was two years, before he could be officially retried. Now, after decades of investigation into the killing of Kennedy, we're left with questions both answered and unsolved. Conspiracy theories about the assassination are everywhere, from CIA or Secret Service involvement. Some believe it was the Soviet Union, Some say there was no conceivable way that Lee Harvey Oswald was the only one involved. Others think there was a shooter on the overpass or the grassy knoll near the scene. Others believe the killing was mafia-related. The Warren Commission, the official committee created to investigate the assassination, however, has only this to say. The shots that killed President Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly were fired from the sixth floor window at the southeast corner of the Texas School Book Depository. The shots which killed President Kennedy and wounded Governor Connolly were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. In a 300-page book. That's all. That's all. That's it. That's it. Another conspiracy theory. Um, People blame Cuba, obviously. Of course. Yeah, that felt pretty obvious, but you didn't say it, so I wanted to say it. Okay, so Kennedy family curse. Basically, if there is a God, he does not like this family (laughs) at all. There's no cutesy, nice way I can break this down. This family is cursed. Literally cursed. Like, 
I'm pretty sure all of them. This is gonna sound really stupid saying I'm pretty sure all of them have died. But like that's the ultimate end for everyone is just death. But they die in really weird ways. This family is literally cursed. Listen to this. So we mentioned earlier that um Joseph Kennedy Jr. died in a plane crash in 1944. However, four years later, his sister, so JFK's sister Kathleen, died. Um, in a plane crash also in France. And back to that topic of weird nicknames, her nickname amongst the family was Kick. Kick and Jack. Kick and Jack. Jack Kick. <laughs> um, Patrick Kennedy that we mentioned earlier passed away of inventory respiratory distress syndrome two days after his premature birth on the 20th anniversary of his father's rescue after sinking PT-109. And then, you know, JFK was assassinated. Right. And then uh, on June 5th, 1968, Robert F. Kennedy was shot by Saran Saran at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. He died the following morning. Saran Saran was actually recently released from prison. I remember. I remember that. And then his son, uh, his son David, died from a drug overdose in 1984. Um, he was actually only 12 years old when he saw his dad, uh, Robert, he assassinated him live TV. And uh, after he got into a car accident, he started to abuse painkillers really heavily, I'm in and out of rehabs and detox centers. And when he was, when he died, he was actually down in Palm Beach, Florida to visit his grandma. On December 31st of 1997, Michael... Lemoy Kennedy died in a skiing accident crashing into a tree in Aspen. On September 16th, 2011, Kara Kennedy died of a heart attack while exercising in the Washington D- in a Washington DC health club. Uh, she reportedly suffered from lung cancer 9 years earlier, but she had recovered uh, after the removal of part of her right lung. And that ladies and gentlemen is why we don't exercise. <laughs> On May 16th, 2012, Mary Richardson Kennedy died by suicide in her home in Bedford, New York. August 1st, 2019, Sorsha Roizen Kennedy Hill, who was the granddaughter of Robert Kennedy, died of an accidental drug overdose in the Kennedy compound in Hyannis Port, which is on Cape Cod, which was their summer home. It's two accidental drug overdoses (laughs) in this family within just a few years. On April 2nd, 2020, Maeve Kennedy McKean disappeared with her eight-year-old son Gideon during a canoe trip in the Chesapeake Bay. Maeve's body was found by divers four days afterwards, and Gideon's body was found two days after hers on April 8th. Now, authorities and investigators believe that Maeve paddled out to retrieve her son's lost ball, leading to the wind and current to simply overturn the canoe. But it doesn't end air, end there. There were other accidents too. Ethel Kennedy's parents, Anne and George Sikal, died in a plane crash in Oklahoma on the 3rd of October in 1955. Um, in 1964, Ted Kennedy, who's JFK's little baby brother, survived a plane crash, um, but I think his assistant, is that what it says? Yes, one of his aides and the pilot. But that's not the only stroke of bad luck that Ted Kennedy had. (laughs) On July 18th of 1969, five years 
Five years afterwards, he drove his car off a bridge in Massachusetts, resulting in the drowning death of a 28-year-old passenger named Mary Jo Capiche. Now, <laughs> he actually waited 24 hours before reporting what had happened and pled guilty to the charges of leaving the scene of an accident. Clem said on the night of the incident, he wondered whether some awful curse did actually hang over all of the Kennedys. <laughs> the answer is yes. The answer is yes, Ted. Okay, so you guys are all caught up now on the Kennedy family curse. If it's even a thing. Ooh. <laughs> it might come back for a Halloween episode. It's probably not coming back for a Halloween episode. The first and last time we talk about this. Yes. Probably not. We'll probably reference, you know, the fan fiction. The fan fiction <laughs> that we're going to write and turn into a podcast. Yeah. Specifically, we have to start with JFK and Nikita because... There was a telephone, and I stand behind that statement. Okay. <laughs> okay. There was a telephone. So do you have anything left to say, or is that the <laughs> end of this episode? I would like to end on the note that there was a telephone. And again, Kennedy wasn't top. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Strange History. Check us out on social media like Facebook and Twitter, and the links are up in the bio. We're so excited to officially be starting season two, and we can't wait to show you guys what we have in store for you so very soon. Uh, we'll be releasing episodes every two weeks, two weeks? every, every uh, other Friday, essentially. Um, which again, we're so excited for. So make sure you're following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Google Podcasts, or wherever your ears are listening. And of course, always <laughs> enjoy the strange, weird things make us us. us.